Well, this morning, before we dive into the word, I wanted to play a a song for us. And my hope is that you could just meditate on this song as we go into the hearing of the word, that it will kind of position our hearts to receive God's word this morning. Some of you will recognize it, very similar song to the one we sang together a few moments ago. It's called Refiner's Fire. If you know it, feel free to sing along. Otherwise, just kind of let these words run through your mind and heart. Let them be a kind of prayer as we go before God and his word. choose to be Ready to do your will. 
Let that be our prayer as we come before God's Word this morning. We'll continue in our series going through Ezekiel. We'll be in Ezekiel 36, 16 to 38 this morning. Hear the Word of God. Wow, tall. Morning. <laughs> All right, let's dive in. The Word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. And that people said of them, These are the people of the Lord, and yet had to go out of his land. But, had, but I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore, says, say to, sorry, therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your admonitions, or sorry, abominations. I can't read, sorry. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places shall be rebuilt. And the land that was desolate shall be tilled instead of being the desolation that was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. Thus says the Lord God, this also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them, to increase their people like a flock, like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feasts, 
so shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You've probably noticed that the tone of the book is beginning to shift from, though there's still words of judgment and warning, it's really starting to take a turn and we're beginning to hear the Lord speak of different things to come for his people. Have you ever been to a new place and on the way into a new town or a state perhaps that you've never been to before. Maybe you see a sign. Some of these are around our area that tells you someone important that has lived there in the past. You ever been to a place like that, a state or a town as you go in might say home of so-and-so, or maybe the sign refers not to a someone, but to a place or a thing. I found a big one online that said something like, Welcome to Memphis, home of the blues. Or Delaware says something like, Welcome to Delaware, home of tax-free shopping. Hmm. If we took a moment, we could probably all think of a place where we've been and seen something like that. When we did our, our tour around the country a couple of summers ago, we saw lots of signs like that. Well, I've been doing a bit of research of late on our little town. Some of you have helped me with that, and I'm very grateful. Thanks to those of you that have played a part in doing interviews and other things. Our town has some notable history, even Christian history. Shock! (laughs) In fact, we have quite the Christian heritage here in Royalton. Now, I know some of you may be from some of the surrounding Uh, villages and whatnot, and that's okay. So I think this, you know, definitely applies to the region, but at the moment I'm speaking right of of Royalton. Evelyn Lovejoy wrote a history of Royalton. It's some 1,200 pages long. If you've never got your hands on that, it's very fascinating. But she writes in her history of Royalton these words. It is noteworthy that one of the first things the pioneers of New England considered in establishing settlements was the provision for supplying their spiritual needs. The settlers of Royalton could hardly have numbered 100 all told when they gave their attention to the matter of stated gospel preaching. A few pages later, she writes of the first known sermon to a gathered group in Royalton. It happened in the home of one Robert Havens, whom I believe we have a descendant of right here in our midst. Miss Wendy. <laughs> Evelyn Lovejoy writes, we can imagine, just try and put yourself in the, in the moment. We can imagine the company gathered in that little log house in the forest. The kindly Benjamin Parkhurst and wife who had found their way on horseback along a trail that could have only partially been cleared at this time. Isaac Morgan and wife who had waded the river if it were summer or crossed on the ice if it were winter. Elisha Kent Jr. and his whole family for John and Elisha III, then striplings would wish to hear grandfather preach and perhaps Joseph Moss, a babe in arms, helped in the music too. If the sermon of this graduate of Yale 
preached in the wilderness to the heroic souls gathered in that rude home had been preserved, how it would be prized by present and coming generations of Royalton. These people were crossing icy rivers and riding on horseback through the woods with their kids to gather in a small little log cabin to hear the gospel preached. That's our heritage. Or what people went through in those days just to hear the gospel. This would have been in the early to mid-1770s that this was happening. Sometime later on, a royalton would actually send out a missionary named Sarah Joyner Lyman. Maybe some of y'all have heard about uh, the Lymans. She and her husband would serve in Hawaii. Maybe some of you are like, I'd like to serve in Hawaii. <laughs> Back then, it probably would have been very different than what we're imagining. But arriving in 1832, they would live the rest of their days there amongst the people. She wrote in her journal, quote, I choose, if it is the Lord's will, to spend my days on missionary ground. This woman was happy to serve the Lord wherever he would send her. And they had eight or nine kids, I believe, in a foreign land amongst the foreign people, giving their lives away. There's something in us that loves to tell these stories of our hometowns, isn't there? It's not my hometown. This is probably more of your hometown, uh, your heritage, than it is my own. For me, being from Charlotte, North Carolina, I could tell of Billy Graham, who was born in Charlotte, or Stephen Curry, who grew up in Charlotte. We think of famous people from our hometowns. Sports has a similar effect on people, doesn't it? When our team is doing really well, we get this feeling of greatness, like somehow we're a part of something, something bigger, something greater than just ourselves. As humans, we are wired to want to be a part of something bigger, to feel like we are a part of a larger story, perhaps pointing to people or movements like this make us feel a little more significant or a little more important in some way to say that person is from my hometown. You get that? You get what I'm saying here? I think that desire is a God-given desire to be a part of something bigger, a bigger narrative, a bigger story, something great. But sadly for humanity, this desire has gone off the rails, has it not? And now... We would desire, as a people, generally speaking, to be associated more with earthly things over and above our own Creator. We find our identity in earthly things over and above our Maker, in many cases. Jeremiah, a prophet whose ministry was happening uh, over in Jerusalem while Ezekiel was a prophet in Babylon, when he was alive, he put it this way. This comes from Jeremiah chapter 2. For my people have, create, have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. We found our significance in things that don't hold water, right? But we were made to be enthralled with God. We were made not to build our own kingdoms and to live our 
own lives for ourselves, but to live for him, to live for God. That's the way it was meant to be. And and when we live for God, true flourishing happens for people. This is the bigger narrative, the bigger story we were called to be a part of. God's story, not our own story. We get it all backwards, you see. We think if we can just live for ourselves and have all the stuff we want, do all the things we want, get our bucket list checked off, and if things go according to our plan, then we will find fulfillment. But that's not true, is it? It's not true. First of all, it's not true because it assumes you can write the best story for yourself. Well, let me tell you, whatever your plan is, whatever your story is, God has a better one. Maybe not an easier one, but a better one. And second, and even more problematic, is that it doesn't take into account the fact that you will never be satisfied writing your own story. You will never be happy while you're trying to have control over your own life. Flourishing actually happens when we allow our maker, our master, to write our story for us. Or better yet, when our maker calls us up into the story he is writing about himself for his own glory. And we get to participate in that grander, greater, eternal story. When we're caught up in the grand thing that God is doing for himself, for his own name, then and only then will we truly flourish. So this is my The big idea I want to try and get across this morning. Very, very simple thought. Because God's story is best for us, we must stop trying to write our own stories. Trying to steal the pen out of God's hand, right? We must trust the plan and story that He has for us. Our passage today, I hope, is going to show us this. We'll look at three things. We may not have time for the final one, so I'll leave that part to you guys to do some homework on and to think about yourself. But I I do intend fully to get to the first two. We're going to look at the problem with writing our own story, why that's a problem. Then we're going to look at the solution to stop trying to write our own story and allow God to write us into his story, so to speak. And then the last piece is to look at the fruit of that. But first, let's look at the problem. The problem, trying to write our own story. Let's look at verses 16 through 21 in our passage today. In this section, what we see is the results of Israel attempting to do things their way. And of course, we've been seeing the results of this over the last number of weeks together in the book of Ezekiel. But just as a refresher, Israel was given a land a place called Canaan, what is roughly today the land of Israel and then some other small territories. It was a gracious gift promised to their forefather, Abraham, and by extension to, to them, their Abraham's descendants. The Lord, through signs and wonders, brought them into this land out of slavery in Egypt. And of course, there's much more to the story than what I'm giving you here, but just a little snapshot. And after he brought them out of Egypt, he gave them his commandments and told them how they ought to live if they wanted to flourish. Brought them into the land, gave them a system of worship that 
depicted him and how they could encounter him and have relationship with him. But what did Israel do? Israel, they did not do these things, right? They quickly cast off God's commands and sought to do things their way. They didn't like, so to speak, the story that God was writing. They wanted to write their own. And the fruit of that project is what we've been talking about in Ezekiel for the last several weeks together. Destruction, misery, judgment, exile. That's the fruit. These hard, hard things that have come their way are the fruit of seeking to write their own story apart from God. Israel is learning the hard way that their efforts to be masters of their own universe and write their own stories and come up with their own ideas about living will not lead to flourishing, leads to destruction. Today, people are doing this all over again. We are trying to redefine reality even in the way we think of all kinds of things, even things that for a very, very long time have been taken for granted. What is a man? What is a woman? Is the body something good or something to be discarded or despised or significantly altered? What is marriage? What is sex? What is a human being? A child in the womb? What are these things? We are trying to redefine these things. And it will not go well. We're trying to write our own story, to write God out of it, quite frankly, to remake ourselves. And let me tell you, we can't do it. We can't do it. We can certainly try, but that road leads right where we see the Israelites in our story. Destruction, misery, exile. Verse 18 mentions Israel's idolatry. You can see it there in the passage there in your bulletin or in your Bible. Israel was bowing down to other gods and not worshiping the God that brought them out of Egypt. God gave them a good law, a temple, and a system that revealed himself to them. They rejected all of that and worshipped all kinds of false gods. But what we are doing today is not so much different from what Israel was doing, quite frankly. Idolatry is when we make something other than God ultimate. It's when we, we make something earthly, something finite, and love it to the extreme at the expense of other things. Idolatry can be found all around us all the time, even in our churches. Truth be told, we are all idol worships, worshipers in one way or another. Right? This is why we confess when we come together as Christians. We confess our sin because every day we struggle with these things, don't we? Yes. I think what's maybe saddest of all is that this idol worship, again, even in the church and all around us, is so common we don't even see it anymore. It's become ordinary and trite. Some of us probably wouldn't even recognize it if we saw it right in our face. It is that prevalent in our world today. We only notice idolatry when it produces some extreme fruit, some highly noticeable thing is suddenly there and we see it. And that's kind of where we are in our culture right now. All this stuff is happening and we're going, where does this come from? It, it's come from years of idolatry. The hens have come home to roost. We didn't see it. Now it's in our face. 
and we see it. All idolatry, even if we don't see it, no matter how extreme it appears on the surface, if it's noticeable or if it's not noticeable, all idolatry is terrible, even when it seems very small to us. What is going on inside a person in their heart is where the real idolatry happens. And what is going on in there is so much more extreme and Serious, And it reveals itself in actions, but it starts deep down inside. You see, the problem with idolatry is that it is willing to give up what is true and good and beautiful for something small and insignificant. Something fleeting and temporary. It's like Esau, for instance, who gave up his birthright for a bowl of soup in Genesis 25. Something very significant is traded for something incredibly momentary and fleeting. All idolatry does this. It makes an exchange. It it exchanges something great and good and beautiful, God and his glory, for something earthly, finite, fleeting, like this world. But the most basic form of idolatry for us is independence from God. And here in America, we celebrate independence. But this is one place where independence can go really, really wrong. The spiritual realm can go very bad. And really, even in the physical realm, right? We need people. We are dependent people. So we have to be nuanced when we think about independence, right? But that's the most basic form of idolatry for us as people, is independence from God. It's, it's a desire to do things our way, to be free of restraint, to be our own master, to answer or not to answer to those whom we choose, right? And this is what Israel did. And the fruit was devastating. Their lands were taken. Their worship destroyed and their culture was ruined because they sought to be free of God. All because they believed they could Write a better story than God. And this is our problem too. We want to be free to do things our way because we think our way is better. But this will only end exactly as it did for Israel. We're kidding ourselves if we think we can worship idols like Israel without any consequences. As individuals or as communities, states, or nations. That's the first thing I want us to see from our passage. Trying to write our own story leads to destruction. Okay? And there's ways we all do this. Okay? So this is not, I mean, it's easy to pick on the stuff that's, you know, we see on the television or or whatever. But this is happening in all of us. Okay? So let's, let's be looking inward and not just, not just outward. But next, let's look at God's response to, to this Um, this effort to be free of him, this effort to write our own story. This is the part of the sermon I'm calling the solution. So we've looked at kind of the problem of trying to write our, our story on our own, and that's what Israel did, and that's what we're doing. But the solution is to stop, right? To stop trying to write our own story and allow God to write us into his story. To write us into his story. Yesterday morning I sat downstairs here in this building and watched a video with a couple of dear brothers and 
The video is on what is called the aseity of God. That's A-S-E-I-T-Y. Aseity of God. The aseity of God refers to God's self-existence. That God has no beginning, no end. When there was no earth, no Milky Way, no universe, there was God. God is an eternal being, lacking nothing, not made, not created by any other being. He simply is, and he exists in and of himself. He needs nothing. He's completely self-sufficient, happy, content with all that he is. So when God created, it was not because of some lack or want or need. From all eternity past, he was completely self-sufficient, satisfied, happy, content, needing nothing. So he did not create to meet some need or lack. He created to give, to share, to bless. What this means is that by definition, this world is his story. It's his to tell, his to God, his to construct. He's the one writing it. He's the one giving it meaning. It has no purpose, no aim, no significance apart from him, its maker, its creator. Yet, every day, we live as though that were not true. More and more, even as a culture. We live our lives for ourselves. We live for our name, for our purpose, for our goals. We spend our money how we want to. We use our time how we want to. We do and say what we want to. Again, I'm saying we. <laughs> this is me as well. We all struggle with this. But let me ask, how many of you And maybe some of you can sincerely say from your heart, and I hope that is absolutely true. I'm just challenging you here this morning to get you to think about these things. Let me ask, how many of you genuinely wake up and say to the Lord at the start of the day, Thy will be done, Lord. This is your day, your story. You've made it. You have a plan and a purpose. Do what you will with me. Is that our sincere prayer? You decide what happens to my life today. You know what's best. Help me adjust. Help me to accept whatever comes. Lord, all I want is what you want. Well, Israel, here in our story before us, certainly was not doing that, were they? But in verses 22 to 32, the Lord reminds Israel in a really remarkable way that it is not about them. Listen to verses 22 and 23. I'll just read those as a little excerpt here. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them, And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. God says in a way here to Israel, let it be a reminder to you that the reason I created you and chose you and brought you out of Egypt was not to make a great name of you, but so that I might put on display all that I am and have been. Before you ever existed. 
right? And to remind you and to invite you into being a part of this great story that I am writing. God says bluntly to Israel and to us this morning, this is not about you. This is about me, my renown, my name, my fame, my glory. Oh, how much better our lives would be if we would get that. If we would get that simple point. That that's why we're here. Lord, help us to get that all of life is about you. And that it's better that way. That our good and God's glory are not at odds. And in fact, they very much go together. We are wrong to insert ourselves into the middle and make it about us. It is not about us. But this is so much better. This story, this way is so much better. And not even in a subjective sense. Because some people may listen to to this message or read passages like this and think, well, that's your opinion. Right? Or from your perspective, sure. I can see where you you might think it's better. But no, this is not my opinion. It's a matter of fact that this is better. Again, assuming, right, that the other things in the Scripture are true, that God is there, that He's loving, all these things. Let me illustrate quickly for you how much better this is to view things this way. On the one side, we have what we know and what we can do and what our power is capable of on the one hand. On the other hand, we have what God knows and what God can do. So let's look at our side. We don't see or know everything, do we? No, our vision is very limited, very Even myopic at times, we fixate on just a few little things that we know about. And we just know those few things. Any of you who have been to school and done any research or study on anything, you find how little you know. You bore in and only find, wow, there's more here than I could ever even imagine, right? We know so little. And even what we know, all we're doing is discovering it. We're not creating or or inventing any of this. We're just discovering all the time. That's our side. And we're even more. We're simple. So what we do learn and what we do know is often flawed and subject to revision later on, is it not? Right? So even the things we do know are tainted and our compass is broken. Thirdly, we don't have the power to make anything happen. Right? So this is what's on our side. Limited knowledge. Limited understanding. Limited power. And all that we do and think is often tainted, right? That's the one side. On the other side of the scale, God sees and knows everything. God is not sinful. He's perfectly good and just, and everything he allows or ordains is right. God has never done anything wrong to anyone. He's never sinned against anyone. God is all-powerful to do what is right and to actually steer the ship. All of it, the billions and billions and trillions and trillions of things happening all at once. He can do it. So, trust our story, our ability, our narrative, our way of doing things, or trust in God. God, of course, right? Hopefully there's some amens out there. Amen! Right? God is the one. We should all want to have the pen of our lives. The one who should be writing our stories and whom we should gladly allow to have control over our life. What we're seeing in our passage today, quite frankly, is that God already has the pen. He is the one moving and shaking, 
we're just very slow to acknowledge that as people. So much of the misery and ruin all around us is because we refuse to acknowledge what is real and true. The grand narrative story that is being written right now in history is about someone else, namely our God, our good and gracious, mighty, sovereign God. And if we are all honest, I think somewhere deep down inside of us, that bothers us because we think that maybe we've been forgotten. If it's that big and that grandiose and we don't have control, maybe we think we'll be forgotten or we'll be discarded or cast aside. I think we're most prone in our moments of suffering and misery to believe that God has forgotten us. Where are you, Lord, in the midst of this? Why are you doing this? Surely you've overlooked me, right? Surely I'm being forgotten. But the truth of the matter is quite the opposite. God has not forgotten us. In fact, most of what ails our world is that we have forgotten God. We have cast him aside. Our troubles are not because God has cast us off. They are because we have cast off God. We refuse to come to him for life. We refuse to see that our lives are better when he is at the center This region that we live in, where this church is situated, Royalton, used to be filled with people who loved God. I mean, no offense by that. I know many of you love God, right? Not implying that there's nobody. (laughs) Just many fewer, perhaps. This region used to be filled with people who saw God as the center of all things. Just to give you another example, I've already Rattled off a few at the start of the sermon. This week I read a beautiful poem by a Vermont farm wife. It was written some 65 years ago. And that's the subtitle of the book is Poems by a Vermont Farm Wife. That's why I use that term. It was written some 65 years ago. And it captures someone just taking a walk and coming to the conclusion that all of this world, this place is not about me. The story is bigger and grander. And it's being written by our holy God. So I'm just going to read it for you. What did you hear as you walked along? I heard one bird's half-muted song. And it's actually on the back of your bulletin. If you flip to the back of your bulletin, it's there. And there was no other sound to hear. A rippling brook ran sweetly near. Where did you stand in long amaze? By the tallest of trees as one who prays. Was there a sign, your heart to ease, a room of soft moss, close circled by trees? Was there a song in that holy wood, a white throat sang, the Lord, he is good? And what do I see in your tranquil face, that I have drawn breath in a high, holy place? You see that sense of creation is singing. And that it is a privilege and joy to draw breath in this theater, this cathedral that its maker is showing off his glory. We have the blessing and privilege to just be here. Ezekiel 36 is a reminder to Israel and to us that the Lord has not forgotten us. We have forgotten him. Even in exile, even when things are brutal and ugly and we don't know where things are going, God has not forgotten his people. God beckons us this morning to come to him, to live for him, 
to live for his name and his renown and his glory to see that you can't make a better story. Okay? Put down our pens. Let's let God write our story. He is competent and capable. But to come to him, to come to him in this way, we must come by way of the cross. And this is perhaps what turns many away, right? We must come by way of the cross. We must bow our knees there at the cross. At the cross, we must lay down our desire to have control, to hold the pen, to create the story. We must lay down our agendas, our purposes, and our plans and be willing to receive whatever God has for us. Well, there is a third part to this sermon, but I'm going to leave that for you. And that's the fruit of doing that. Okay, if you look in that last section there in Ezekiel 36, you'll see the fruit of living this way for the Lord. But one caveat, um, much of what's spoken of there in Ezekiel 36 applies specifically to Israel in the land. And there is a distinction for us because we are not, at least as far as I know, ethnic Israel. I didn't want to get into all those theological pieces today. We're going to get into that in the coming weeks. So I'm going to leave that part for you uh, to think on the fruit of this. Okay, but that was what the Lord laid on my heart to share with you this morning. So let's go to the Lord in prayer now, and then we'll turn to him in a final song. Lord, it is difficult uh, as people to uh, relinquish our sense of control, to relinquish our desire to um, have a say, as it were, um, and to assert ourselves, especially in this country, Lord, where we are told that we have rights and where we are, every individual um, is viewed, at least in the eyes of the law, or should be as important and significant. God, it's hard for us to, to not think through our lenses and to come to a passage like this and to see you say to us, it's okay. I'm writing a story. It's better than anything you could come up with. And I'm going to empower you to live in it. And I'm going to empower you for whatever I send your way. God, help us this morning to come to the cross, to lay down our pens, our rights, our agendas, and to submit wholly and completely to your plan, your will, the story that you are writing for our lives. Give us grace to do that, Lord. And as we do that, to remember that as we bow at the cross, we are bowing at a place of infinite love, a place of infinite justice, a place of infinite goodness and grace. We come to a God that is merciful, wonderful, beautiful, and good. And that's what we'll sing about in this next song. In your name, amen.